My name is Chris Garcia. And I'm Rhonda Solis. And, and we're, we're Latino, Latino Northern, Northern Colorado. Colorado. Today, we are so excited to be here with Jesse Tijerina, who launched the Instagram account at Books in Brown Hands with the tagline, The Books of a Brown Bibliophile, in February of this year. Jesse started his collection of books, short stories, pamphlets, posters, and other publications early in life and has shared the power of representative literature and education with the communities he engages with and serves. For those of you who don't know, Jesse also works locally in the Greeley-Evans School District, teaches educational leadership and Chicano studies at Colorado Higher Educational Institutions, has a passion for educational equity, and has often hosted book clubs through his work, volunteerism, and with family and friends or in his personal life. Welcome, Jesse. We are so excited to have the opportunity to host you on today's episode. I'm honored to be with you all. I know it's been a long time coming, so I'm super excited. <laughs> maybe six months. <laughs> maybe six months. Maybe, maybe about a year, a year and a half. Maybe a year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we're here. Um, it's a great way to start our, our week, mm -hmm. our second week back in uh, school. So I'm super excited to spend the evening with you. So yeah, I'm ready to get started. Awesome. And so I just have to tell our listeners, and we'll make sure and take pictures and oh, yeah. post them, because like we're just sitting in this room full of these powerful, powerful books. And I don't even know like where you would even start to begin like picking out a book to read. I mean, it's just such an amazing collection. So yes, we will make sure and take pictures and post because I, I just like want people to feel what we feel sitting in here. I mean, it's not even just books, right? There's like art, mm -hmm. there are images, there are short stories, there are pamphlets, booklets, trinkets, all kinds of different things that just kind of like, how long have you been collecting it? So I started collecting, I would say around 96, no, not 96, about 93. So what does that make about? 20, yeah, yeah, quite a bit of time. I was, uh, I was at Metro. Um, I had just gotten a job at the Hermitage Antiquarian Bookshop. Actually, I was looking for a part-time job. So I had gone to uh, Barnes & Noble. I had gone to Borders. I had gone to the Tattered Cover in Cherry Creek. That was the last place I had gone to try to get a job. I was going to Metro full-time, but I needed a part-time job for gas and all that other good stuff, right? And uh, I was at Cherry Creek, and I was just... Really disappointed because, again, tattered cover, did not need anybody, and I always wanted to, to work at a bookstore. So I was walking down Fillmore, and all of a sudden I see this really beautiful gold sign that read the Hermitage Antiquarian Bookshop. So I walked down the stairs, and I went into this bookstore, and it looked like a, a library, right? I didn't even know if they were selling books at this place. And I said, ah, you know, I'll take a chance. So I asked the owner, who I didn't know the owner was at the time, but his name is Robert Topp. I asked him, I'm like, would you be happy to looking for somebody for a part-time job? And coincidentally, they were looking for somebody to shelve books for about 20 hours a week. So I'm like, yes, yeah, sign me up. I got, I got started there and I'd go to, to school in the morning from like 8 to 10. I go straight to the bookstore, work until about 5, go back to Metro for a class around 6.30 and I'd get out of there about 8.30. And I did that um, for three years until I graduated, but I ended up working at that bookstore for six years what I learned at that bookstore was that folks were buying books from like estate sales, segundas, thrift stores, garage sales, and they'd come in. They were called book scouts. I didn't know that at the time. And they were called book scouts and they'd sell the books to the, to the bookstore. Um, the bookstore would research the books and then turn around and sell them to, you know, collectors or, cool. or archives. Um, so I really learned how to really look out for books and search for books. So that ultimately became something that I did for six years 
as a full-time worker. So, you know, that's where it kind of all started my bug for book collecting. I had always had a passion for words, um, although I had never read a book cover to cover until I was 23. I'd read a lot of poems, a lot of short stories through school. But I would say that's where kind of my my passion for book collecting began was at the Hermitage Antiquarian Bookshop in Cherry Creek. So that kind of goes into our first question of just kind of, you know, telling us a little bit about your story and just kind of how this whole library began. Uh, and then also what kind of shaped you into the person you are today? So a little bit about my story. Grew up in Fort Lupton, Colorado. I was born in Denver, Colorado. Lived in Fort Lupton until I was 36. And really what shaped me into the person I am today had nothing to do with books. It was skateboarding that shaped me into the person I am today. You know, it was a part of my life for so long. It's still a part of my life. Um, it really was what really has shaped me in the sense of traveling, of being exposed to different communities, discovering spaces where actually there was no issues with race, no, there's no issues with gender, identity, um, socioeconomics. It was a place that there was a collective of people all wanting the same thing, which is one, to accomplish a trick. Mm. Um, so that really helped me therapeutically, discipline-wise. Um, as long as I was able to get my grades and pass my classes, my mom and my dad always supported my love for skateboarding, so I was always able to travel, even through my teenage years, even if it was me taking a couple of weeks off of school, as long as I was getting my grades there. Um, but if I were to look at what shaped me as a youth, um, I would say my, 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 my father's hard work, mm -hmm. you know, him being a migrant farm worker, my mom also being a migrant farm worker, my family being of migrant farm workers. Um, there says a lot to that work and what it takes around surviving not only the heat, yeah. you know, but surviving the discrimination, the racism, um, the areas where it was probably not healthy to work in certain spaces, yeah. you know, the labor camps, the pesticides. Um, but always seeing that love that at the end of the day, um, sitting on a costal of onions, you know, having a taco and a Budweiser was always a great thing. And it seems like your family really kind of like instilled that passion for education. As you're talking about like the good grades piece, you know, my dad always said to me like, la escuela es tu trabajo, like your job is going to school and like you got to do good there. Is that similar to totally? Kind of, yeah, you know, totally. It's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, they may not have known what it looked like beyond seventh grade, which was the end of their traditional education, right? But their education continued, of course, oh, yeah. right? Um, however, you know, it was that space to where they always said something like, don't do what we're doing. Don't mm -hmm. make the same mistakes we did. Which in truth, yes, although they made mistakes, there was a lot of, you know, purposeful hope. There was a lot of radical hope. There was a lot of wisdom that really positioned me that when it was an opportunity for me to shine, um, I was there and I was prepared. Awesome. And just that core ethic of hard, hard work mm -hmm. and, and, you know, doing it and mm -hmm. doing it the right way and taking pride in no matter what job you had. Yep. Right. I mean, you know, when you see a father getting up at four, taking off at five and coming home when the work is done and you see that on a daily basis. Right. Um, it instills that in you to where when it's your time, it's not fearful. You've been there and done that. You know, you've seen it. So you know that it's possible. Well, you know, even in our conversation that we had during your presentation at Equity Day of Dialogue in the, you know, those dichos, and it was very much around like, uh, do better than we did, right? Like, haz mejor que nosotros, no trabajes tan duro, don't work as hard as we did. It's, it's kind of a different style of work, but they're like, you're inside. You know, my parents still think I'm some kind of a teacher, 
right? Like in many ways I am. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's, there's so many pieces of like that hard work changes, right? Like they don't want you to like work your body as hard as they work their bodies. No, but we work our brain pretty Mm -hmm. hard. (laughs) (laughs) But it's almost like we do this. Our patients, so you don't emotional labor, Emotionally, right? That's some taxation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think about that taxation, you know, I just figure you just put that on direct deposit and don't sweat it, right? How do you move beyond that struggle and continue to celebrate and preserve and protect what it is to be, for me, at least a brown educator, a brown man in this world? Well, Jesse, uh, into our next question, since I asked you like 42 at this point, um, <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the works that you are proudest of owning? There's so many. I'll tell you what. My favorite author is a German author named Hermann Hesse. Um, he's most popular for a book titled Siddhartha. Uh, but there's a book that's considered his opus, which he wrote in 1946, um, right before he passed away. And it's called The Glass Speed Game Magister Ludi. And it's about 637 pages. It's by far the longest book I've ever read. I'm more of like a 250-page guy. I like the smaller books. Um, but this book kind of just, it blew me away. It's about a, a, a guy named Magister Ludi, um, who is living in this like gymnasium. He's almost like this, this monastery, this monk. And they play this game called the Blast Speed, Speed Game. And it's really like, not metaphysical, but it's elevating your mind at a different level. And ultimately, he ends up leaving this sect um, and wanting to look at life and what other people were living Right, because he was living kind of behind closed doors, really philosophically about poems, about the game. Um, so he finally moves on and he begins to live what I would say others might consider a public life. I won't say the ending in case you all read it, but you got to read the end. Um, it really kind of shaped me as a reader. When I finally read that book, it was something that was an accomplishment, right? Not only for the length of the book, but for the heaviness of the language and the words. You know, I spent a lot of time on a dictionary trying to figure out what they were saying or what he was saying as a writer. I remember I spent a lot of time wishing that I was able to read it in German because I would have loved to have read it in his original context. I read it in translation. But nevertheless, you know, I've read everything that Hesse has written in translation. Um, And, you know, even though there's a lot of books for me to read in the future, I can easily say that that will go down as my most favorite book. But that's definitely not one of, you know, it's one of many, right? But that is definitely my favorite book. I would say another book that's very important to me is that my first year teaching uh, English to eighth graders at Fort Lupton Middle School happened to be um, with some other teachers, and we were going through some old textbooks. And there's uh, there's a book that's called Emblems, which takes me back to another book called Kaleidoscope. When I was in fourth grade, um, I wasn't really a strong reader. I could read words, however, I really had struggled with the understanding of what the words meant mm. all together. And I remember they put me uh, with a teacher um, named Miss Stein, really cool teacher, and I would wear these red bulbous headphones, and they'd have this tape recorder, and they'd have these chapter books, so I would read a, a, a word by word by word in these little chat books, right? They're called chat books. Um, and that really shaped me as a reader, and I remember because I was in all the kids in fourth grade were in kaleidoscopes and I was in beacons. Like they were in a thicker book. I was in this thin book, you know, and I do also remember my fourth grade teacher really being frustrated with me because I couldn't understand, Mm. you know, and I look back and I reflect and it was really a disappointment of how I believe I was treated as a fourth grader by this, by this teacher. That's another story. Um, However, you know, Miss Stein really shaped, really began to shape really how I collected words together. 
So fortunately, when I was an eighth grade teacher, an eighth grade teacher as my first year in Lupton, I was able to find a book called Emblems, you know, that has my name in it. So in truth, it was my book when I was an eighth grader and I was looking at it as they were going through these books that they were going to throw away. And I opened the book and there I have it, you know, in, in, in year 84, 85, Jesse Tijerina used you know, Fort Lupton Consolidated Schools, you know. So I was not yet born. You, right? <laughs> you yeah, know, you just, shush, just shush, shush. You know, and, and you go down the list, right, of uh, names, and you begin to recognize some of the names of the other people that were there. But how amazing that, you know, I would say that it didn't happen happenstancely. I would say that it happened because it was meant to happen, mm, that I would find so this cool. book that was my book, you know, and it's probably not worth even the paper that it's been printed on however for me it's it's very valuable in 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 terms that you know this is a book that i would open up as an eighth grader and read i mean what's so powerful about this is that like it 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 brings back these core memories right of like reading and education and teachers who made a Mm -hmm. difference and potentially teachers who didn't make a difference you know like my second grade teacher in las cruces new mexico his name was mr fight um and mr fight found out that i was dyslexic and like literally would have to flip everything that I wrote and look at, look at it up in the light and was like never tra- treated me less, never anything, but was like he's getting everything right. right. He's just writing it all backwards. Um, and so that was something that like he explained to my family. And I mean, even to this day, you know, there's days that I'm like writing emails and I'm like, what the heck did I write right now? Because sometimes the letters just get jumbled, you know. Um, but those are things that, like, I, I will never forget Mr. Fight because he helped me get through this issue, right? That, like, mm-hmm. if, I don't know, maybe a different teacher, All I would right. have never never gotten through that. Or it would have been, I'm less than, or something like that. And it was like, no, I'm getting everything correct. It's just backwards. No, and those teachers become pillars because along the way you find these other teachers that, you know, treat you in a very deficit lens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that easily you realize why some students are pushed out you know and finally or give up right Mm -hmm. they finally succumb Mm -hmm. because evidence has told them that the help doesn't exist it's always neglect neglect so yeah i mean i feel you resiliency right right? like you know it just it's amazing you know what's also amazing about this book is the fact is that i remember looking at this book and what i was taught as an eighth grader and also having it sit right next to bless me ultima which i was teaching as an eighth grade teacher you know, and how, how although this may not have been the lit- literature I preferred to read at the time without knowing, but to have an understanding that, you know, Rodolfo Anaya's novel was published in 1972, a year before I was born. However, you know, it took me until I was 23 years, 23 years old to discover this. Mm-hmm. And the first question I asked was, why didn't any of my teachers through K-12 through ever expose me to this book that was me in the book? You know, it took, a book, it took me being in a book to stay with the book, mm-hmm. right? You know, so to have the opportunity to know that, you know, I'm not only representative of the of the race or the color of the students in front of me. However, I'm also, you know, incorporating, you know, the voice of an author that was very representative of, of who they are. You know, curaneras, abuelitas, yes. la llorona, tortillas, frijoles. Um, so it just it, it's it's amazing what that can be for for really not only creating safe spaces for student voice, um, but showing what the possibility might look like. And just that excitement of reading a book you could relate to. Oh, yeah. 
words that you know and recognize. I don't know how many times our kids are in a classroom reading a story and they're expected to know the content of a word and they've never heard the word yep. before. It's not everyday common word that they would hear within their family or, you know, their get togethers or with their friends or anything like that. Especially for English language learners or emerging bilinguals, right? And like, that's a big challenge. Apenas entiendo, I barely understand what you're trying to tell me and you're expecting me to find the context. And it's not even my it, story. Right? It's not even my story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so in saying that, I just got to read Rolofania's second paragraph of the first chapter. I say by far, this is probably my favorite opening. Um, let me begin at the beginning. I do not mean the beginning that was in my dreams and the stories they whispered to me about my birth and the people of my father and my mother and my three brothers, but the beginning that came with Ultima. So, you know, that, that right there really uh, began to make me realize that words were powerful, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they were representative of me as well. Well, in that moment, you open a book yeah. that you can relate to and it just draws you in. <sighs> And then you're just, you know, you're yeah. just in awe yeah. of this person who's saying these words, telling a story that you've never met, and you just feel this connection. And I'll, this takes me in, and I know we're not answering the questions you are, but it just takes me into the next thing, right? So something you else. You are, though. So, something that's really, uh, I mean, I would say it's, um, it's an interesting story, right? So I was at Metro. And I'm walking to the Tivoli, and I'm hungry. And I probably had about six or seven bucks in my pocket, right? And I was going to go to Taco Bell. Um, and then I'm walking, and all of a sudden I see this sign that says, uh, Bless me ultima, reading by Rodolfo Anaya. Oh, my goodness. So I'm like, what? one, one, I'm like, I don't even, I've never even heard of this author, right? Um, and although I was in a Chicano literature class, you know, we were looking, we were reading a, Good stuff. However, we were really, really reading early stuff that might be considered Chicano literature, right? So I'm walking and I decide to walk into the Tivoli and there I, there's these little paperbacks. I still wish I had the paperback that I bought that day for $5.95. I don't have it. I ended up trading it at a, at a used bookstore a while back. Um, so I sat there and I'm hearing Rodolfo Anaya read from Bless Me Ultima. Um, so rather than eat at Taco Bell, I ended up buying the book. And that was the first book that I read cover to cover. I can remember exactly when I finished reading it. Um, but really, that book set me on fire. So after that, you know, they finished the reading. If you've ever been to a reading, after the reading, the author will stay there and they'll do a signing. So yep. I go and I get my my stuff signed. Um, and I give it a little fanaya my information. I just wanted to let him know that, you know, it was amaz it's amazing for him to be here. I look forward to reading his book. But even though I had not read a book cover to cover... I was always somewhat wanting to be a writer. Like one of my dreams was to become a poet and a fiction writer, a novelist. And uh, so I was always writing something. I was writing poems. I was attempting to write short stories. And I said, you know what? Can I get your information? Here's my information. I'd like to send you a short story someday. Cool. And sure enough, right? After that, I began to send him short stories. And Rodolfo Anaya would send him back with, this was still when he was teaching at the University of New Mexico. He was already a, a professor emeritus. So he'd send him back and he would send back feedback. Oh, so wow. I have all of these, these things that I wrote that he would send back feedback. 
Wow. You know, here's his signature from his office. Um, so I have story upon story that I would send him, you know, over the years. And he would send me feedback. Like, that's all in his hands. so cool. So, you know, after I graduated from uh, Metro, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to go to grad school. Right, I'm gonna go to grad school. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to become a writer. So I applied here at UNC um, to their creative writing program or their their literature program, right? And before I had gotten accepted, they had let me take a, a couple of classes. Um, and I was going through the process of acceptance. And so I reached out to Anaya, and he wrote me a letter of recommendation. <gasps> so here's a letter of recommendation. Oh my goodness! From the Anaya, and I'll read it. I'll read it. Right, August eighteenth, nineteen ninety nine. Graduate School University in Northern Colorado. Jesse Tijerina has asked me to recommend him to your English master's program. I first met Jesse during a book signing I did in Denver. Since then, he has mailed me some of his stories. I think he's a very accomplished writer, and he is motivated. I don't know much about his past scholarship. I'm sure he will make a fine candidate for your program, especially if he follows his creative writing inclination. Sincerely, Rodolfo Anaya. So, so I apply for the program and wouldn't you have it that they rejected me what <laughs> so unc rejected me and ultimately ended up going to the university of denver so i ended up becoming an alumnus to to du um a place that i'm a recent adjunct professor at the educational leadership policy and studies program so you know it may have been a blessing in disguise yeah. however you know there's some kind of an irony to it right um because ultimately i ended up spending five years at the university of northern colorado um, teaching for their Chicano Latinx uh, American Studies program, uh, the education of the Mexican American students. So, n no hate against UNC. I got a lot of love for UNC, but man, you all didn't accept me. You didn't let him in. You didn't let me in. <laughs> it's one of those things too. It's like oh. you know, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes you don't, you don't recognize it. There's things yeah. you're still salty about. You don't recognize, but it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, maybe that happened for And, and do, you, do, you, do you let me in on an interview? I didn't even have to really apply. I just met with them one day, one day and they said, yeah. And then they paid half. Wow. So, See, you, there you go. There you know, you go. some of these things, too, is like, it, it. I mean, I believe in some sense of destiny, right? And right. so in, in many instances, like, this could have also been, like, your destiny, right? Oh, right. Like, yeah, the universe because, working with yeah. you. Yeah, the universe was working with you and connecting you to the next opportunity and connecting you to the next, like, rung and the next connection, right? Like, right. I mean, oftentimes, I think that, you know, we, we, we also kind of insulate ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe, like, Northern Colorado could have been that insulation and it was, like, a challenge for you to go to DU. Right. Potentially, right? And, like, these are things that... that you know, you kind of challenge yourself with and you kind of open up to and you kind of say like, oh, okay, this is a new experience. These are new people. These are my gente también, you know? Right. Like, and so like you find that other connection and then you're like, ah, oh, okay. And then te conectas a alguien más, you connect to something else, you you find another home, you find another opportunity. Bigger um, network. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Oh, the UD has been amazing. I mean, mm -hmm. they're still very much a part of my, of my, you know, career and just my, my life as a, as a reader, as a thinker. You know, and the work that I do, yeah. I had a situation kind of like that, too. I got invited to go to an event just kind of out of the blue. It was in Longmont. It was a LULAC class that brought this author in. My friend was going. He asked me to go. I was like, yeah, I guess I can go. So I go, and it's Victor Villasenor. Oh, the and Reign of Gold. Yes. And I had never heard of him, never heard of the book. Yeah. And just meeting him, it was like we had known each other mm -hmm. forever. We have these 
pictures of us just like hugging each other. Like, you know, we hadn't seen each other for a couple years and now we're together. It was just, it was a crazy experience. Well, that's a pillar of Chicano literature. Yes. And reading his books, it was just like, wow, wow. That's a pillar of Chicano literature. That's cornerstone for sure. But it's one of those things. The universe just kind of puts you where you're supposed Mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. Are there any books here, like, you know, especially you about being around young people, are there any books that you're like, oh my gosh, this kiddo needs to read this book. I'm going to bring you a book. Do you have those? I feel like, you know, you, you probably have those moments. Of... I do. I do. So there's a book um, by Benjamin Alida Science. He wrote a book titled Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe. His follow-up book is Aristotle and Dante Dive into the Waters of the World. It's going to be a movie actually here soon. Um, it's a great book about two young boys um, not only discovering, you know, their own identity, their own sexual identity, but it's also just two young boys, you know, through a certain rite of passage. You know, and why I really enjoy that book is that one, it relates to me in the sense that they're two brown boys. Um, but two, they're, although that, you know, their sexual identity is different than mine, the humanity that we, that we experience mm-hmm. through our lived experience of being exposed to certain realities, right, um, is familiar. Mm-hmm. So you feel them um, and, and you also feel, you know, the struggle that they are going through, right? You know, through intersectionality, not only, you know, as LGBTQ, but as being brown and LGBTQ. Because mm-hmm. those are two different spaces. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. You know, it's a my belief. And being that you, men and brown. Exactly. And LGBTQ, and brown, right? right? Yes. Like, and yeah. the machismo and yeah. the, right? Like, there's like so, so many, many layers. layers. Yes. You know, and beyond the fact that it's just a strong book, he's a he's a poet, you know, He's a poet, and that book just reads like a poem. So um, I would definitely recommend anything that he's he's written and is going to write in the future. Another book that is, uh, I think, that is great for youth is a book by a lady named Meg Medina. She wrote a book called Yaki Delgado Wants to Kick Your Ass. <laughs> um, and it's a book about the 10th grade girl named uh, Petey, Petey Sanchez. Um, and she's going to a new school, and as she's walking in, um, she doesn't know that Yaki Delgado is 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 watching her, and apparently Yaki believes that Piri Sanchez is is looking at her at Yaki's boyfriend, Eesh. and immediately the cheese mess starts, right? You know, and all of a sudden, you know, Piri's at at this new school, and these girls that she doesn't know are coming up to her and saying, "You know, Yaki Delgado wants to kick your ass." Eesh. So she goes through this whole tenth grade experience and growing through this ugly. Um, but it's a beautiful book that I would recommend not only for, for you know, Latinas, um, but anybody experiencing a new school or a new setting yeah. um, and being unfamiliar to this territory. And you know that people are, you know, throwing cheesemas about you. You know, I wish, man. You know, right? I went to 13, you know, schools. Wow. <laughs> you know, so that's a great book. Great author. Anything that Meg Medina writes, is, she's also a great Chicana author. Well, that goes directly kind of into the next question in that you created this Instagram page called Books in Brown Hands. And like, I guess the question definitely is, why did you feel like a book like or a page like this needed to be created? Why on Instagram? Um, Why do you feel like you've stewarded this audience kind of in a direction? I mean, the reason why I first followed it was because it's yours, but then also like the imagery that you post on there really kind of evokes opportunity. And and I have to say, like, after I saw Sabrina and Corina on your page, I read it. Have you read it? Mm-mm. Oh, my God. 
You have to read it, Rhonda. It's about it's it's stories about Latinas from Colorado and generations of Latinas from Colorado. Oh, wow. And yeah, Califardos. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um and it was just like I I mean, I read uh Sabrina and Corina the chapter and I swear to you I had tears in my eyes because of the impact that death has on families and the impact in layers that like family members have to take on when someone dies you know when when i read sisters i mm -hmm. you know like the impact that racism and and really exoticism of latina women can have right when i read sugar babies the idea that like back in the day folks were like well all you are is a baby making machine right mm -hmm. so like let's teach you how to make a baby like take care of a baby right like there's so many layers in that book that like Right. And, and, and the remedios from the curandera grandma yes. and, the, you know, like there's like so many stories and pieces. And I guess like, is that why you decided this was needed or was it just like, I want to share my library with the world? So I've been, you know, I've been thinking about that. Right. You know, my my own children, they don't consider themselves readers because they don't necessarily read a book cover to cover as I did. Right. When I was that age. However, you know, they're readers. They read. If they didn't read, they wouldn't have the success academ academically that they're having, right? They just don't consider themselves as readers, you know? So, one, discovering books. So, I always wanted to do something as I began to build this library, and I never thought it would become this. Um, but, you know, my son ended up moving rooms, and the room that he was going to um, had my books. And I, as I was packing the books over, like, five, six months into boxes... I was realizing that I remembered pretty much every book where I bought it, why I bought it, what it's meant to me, um, how I've used it either in my life or my work. And uh, I'm like, wow, that's that's pretty amazing that I'm going through literally thousands of books. And one, I remember it. And two, I remember that I have it. So if I buy a duplicate, I do it on purpose, right? I buy it because I have somebody in mind that I would like to give this book to because I love gifting books. So I thought, you know, gosh, what a great way to write a bibliography. One of the things that I always wanted to do as a book collector was write a bibliography of the books I had. That way, one, I had exactly what I what I knew I had, and two, I could actually put a price to it. You know, because eventually I'm going to donate this book to, to an archive or to a university. Um, because, one, I don't know if my children would love it as much as I do, um, because times have changed, right? Mm -hmm. And two... You know, it's essentially a research library. I've had Chicano professors come over to research work that they're working on because they can't find it in their own library. And, you know, there's some pieces in here that are essentially museum pieces. Um, so I thought, you know what? What a great opportunity to do this and have fun doing this. Yeah. So one of my great friends, Nelson Rodriguez, who is... Uh, who is all Nelson. yes. <laughs> you know, he's got a, he's got a great... Uh, he's got a great Instagram of his own. Hashtag Blazer Chronicles, at Blazer Chronicles. You got to <laughs> check it out. Um, but nevertheless, you know, he always told me, you got to put this out there. You got to put this out there. This is special. Like, this is not something you find often. You know, and I knew that it was special. I mean, it's one of the largest private libraries of Chicano literature in the country. Um, so that's nice to have. And uh, I'm like, well, I don't know how to do it, right? I don't know if I'm secure with my words out there. You know, I don't know if I feel confident about that because I rarely post anything, even on Facebook. Um, so one day I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start thinking about a name. 
So we would get together with each other and we'd think about all these names. Well, what can we call it? What can we call it? As I was moving the books, you know, to a different location, you know, I'm like, well, shit. Right. Books in brown hands. There you right? go. Perfect. You know, um, because I didn't want anything just to be solely brown. But I wanted it to be that they were in brown hands because they're being read through a brown perspective. Yes. Right? Through my brown eyes, through my brown ears, you know, my brown imagination. You know, because I love literature and translation, whether it's Yukio Mishima from Japan, again, Hesse from Germany, um, Daniel Alarcon from Peru. I mean, there's just so many writers that really enjoy that um, are not necessarily Chicano writers, right? You know, so I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. And I thought, what a perfect name, mm -hmm. Books in Brown Hands, because, yeah, they're different books. However, they're in my brown hands. Yes, I love that. So how would you say this passion shows up for you in your work at the district or, you know, other professional affiliations, you know, the college, different groups that you're in? How does this passion show up and, and how do you share it? Oh, man, I'll tell you what. It takes me back to Metro, right? You know, I believe that in education, a, in a, a kid of color, right, a student of color, through their K-12 through or post-secondary, they experience these, these moments where... Um, they can almost be debilitating because of how you see the treatment of a teacher. You know, and I remember being at uh, Denver Metro going through the English and Secondary Education program, and I had a professor, and we had a list of books that she wanted us to read and create a lesson plan. And there was no books by an author of color. And I'm like, I just can't relate to these particular authors. Like, I can't talk about the human experience in this lesson by reading this author who has nothing to do with me, has not my lived experience. So I took the chance and I used Tomas Rivera, um, Y no se lo trago la tierra, and the earth did not devour him. I used that book and I created this lesson plan. And, uh, and I struggled at the time being in front of folks. Like uh, being in front of folks and being an orator or a facilitator was something that I never wanted to do. Um, I actually got a C in speech class, and you needed to get a B to be in the teacher's program. So I had to go back and retake that class to get a B. <laughs> you know, man. <laughs> right? I just didn't want I had this fear, right? And you know how they tell you, you know, imagine everybody naked. I'm like, hell no, I do I want to imagine anybody naked. Did they force you to record yourself? And then you had to, At like... the time, no, we okay. didn't, you know. At the time, we were barely, barely getting into uh, email with Alpine. It was still the black screen and the green font, you know, so yeah, recording was... <laughs> yeah, Chris, it yeah. didn't exist. <laughs> we yeah. had to record yeah. ourselves. Yeah. And then, you know, we, I went through the teaching program, yeah. too. I mean, at UNC, and we had to record ourselves. We also had to get a B in this I class. I might have dropped out, bro, if they had to record <laughs> yeah. it. And then you had to, like, write your own, like, assessment. And then, like, you got the teacher's assessment as well, the professor's assessment. But it was very much about, like... This is what you did well. Here's what you didn't do well. I mean, oftentimes you also got clicked, right? Like a clicker if you yeah, said no. um or we like. We had projectors or, at the time. Right? We had those, uh, <laughs> what are they called? With the light and they channel. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, like oh, overheads or overheads. something? Overheads. Yeah. <laughs> we had overheads. You had a vis-a-vis? -vis? <laughs> yeah. And you had to try to multitask, right? Move that around and do that. <laughs> so, right, I, I do I do uh, Tomas Rivera, who's, oh, man, if you haven't read In the Earth Did Not Devour Him, you got to read that. And I did the lesson, and uh, the response was awesome, right? The students were like, that was really cool. And uh, the professor calls me in and essentially wants me to redo the lesson because I didn't follow the the, the you know, the rules. The, the, the rubric, the, yeah. The rubric, right? I didn't follow that. 
and I essentially failed it. Um, so ultimately, I kid you not. Yeah, you, this, you impact these yeah, kids at man. this level, and yet they're telling so, you you failed. So ultimately, we ended up having a meeting, and I essentially asked, you know, I, I just need to pass this class to go on and, and get my degree. Um, and wouldn't you have it that she gave me a D? You know, she was really disappointed that I didn't follow the rubric. Um, and, you know, that I think about that particular time and, and the courage it must have taken me. One, because I was afraid to be in front of folks. But two, to be really authentically um, representative of something that was unfamiliar to them, in many ways unfamiliar to me, right? Um, but really that shaped me in the sense that I knew that representation in literature mattered. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, I just continued to to be okay with the resistance when it came to that because it continued and it still continues today. You know, there's, you know, there's these spaces where um, traditional educators or veteran, veteran educators are still very unfamiliar with what culturally sustaining pedagogy looks like, right? And uh, it just, how do you plant a seed? How do you raise their awareness? That way they begin to have some understanding of what it is to be transformed by us um, when it's really unfamiliar because we've always been transformed by them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Exactly. And I think there's like pieces around like authenticity. Yeah. There's like a, a yeah. challenge in like pandering or, oh, yeah. right? Like there, there, there's so many things of like, are you doing this because you actually want to, or is mm-hmm. it because you want to show up in a certain way, right? Like there's so many challenges I think that like also show up yeah, for I educators, mean, right? And, you know, I just, as as the years went by, I just discovered I wanted to teach what I would have loved to have learned. Right. right? Yeah. You if know. what you need doesn't exist, yeah. then you yeah, create because, it. Because my, my whole fire around around being an educator and really learning came when I saw myself in books. So I knew then that, you know, that's 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 an avenue that mattered. Brown lives matter. Yeah. It, it touches and it ignites and mm-hmm. it, it starts that seed and, and can create and lead to such a passion for education and learning and that feeling of, oh, yes, I can do this. Oh, yeah. And, I, and even in, in all my work, right? So as a teacher, it was huge. You know, the literature that I read, oftentimes I taught. Um, as a professor, a lot of the literature that I read is also integrated in, in the work I do with students. Um, and now in my position, when I look at professional development, if it's around racial equity or if it's around looking at disproportionality and data when it comes to brown males, um, it's there, you know, it's there in the sense that one, the language exists. Um, and, you know, it's really cool to be able to speak to something that oftentimes is not spoken to. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, well, it's how I keep my sanity as well, right? You know, so it's it's really cool to be able to one, not oftentimes in education, um, you might find yourself learning about something because you have to have knowledge about it. You know, and if you're lucky, um, what you're passionate reading about is your work. Mm-hmm. And and that's what it is for me is that um, whether it's reading James Baldwin, whether it's reading, you know, Pedro Noguera, um, it's always in my work. You know, uh, part of what you're saying like super resonates with me because in my student teaching at Greeley West, I remember specifically a young man who uh, came up to me and, and told me that he was deciding to drop out. And it was the first semester of his senior year, you know, and I said, you can't, right? Like, this is, yeah. you, you have one, this is your last year, right? And, and speaking to so many of the white educators who said, like, 
man, he's such a difficult student or, you know, he just doesn't get it or things like this. And I'm like, man, he's one of the best students in my class. Right. And, and, and I think it's because like there's like a cultural reflectivity that he saw. There was a there was a passion. There was an idea that this person wants me to succeed. And I remember like him telling me that he was leaving because he got a girl pregnant. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like the the understanding and cultural context of like this shit happens sometimes. Right. right? And then and then so like I didn't care. I went to he worked at so- Sonic at the time. And every day I would go to Sonic and grab a tea or something, you know, and I'd be like, you got to come back. You got to come back. And he came back that semester. You know, I do. I know if he graduated or not. No, I don't know. But the idea that like there are different challenges, there are different issues, there are different impacts. um, And it's so important for us to recognize that those things are real. And if we ignore them or we just like. Lo tachamos. I don't know how you say that in English. Like you, you, you mark that person as just a bad student. Then they become a bad mm. student. It without understanding everything that comes with that. Oh, that's that's a whole other podcast, right? Right, <laughs> man. Right. You know, you know, uh, one of my buddies, Mace Castillo. He's a uh, counselor at Frontier. Um, we were talking one day, and he he essentially created this term called educational orphan. I'm like, well, what's that about? Um, and he goes, well, there comes a time where you surpass, you know, the education of your parents, you know, you know, and, and for him, I forget what grade it was, but for me, it was in, in the seventh grade, right? My folks um, ended up going straight, working full time in the fields. You know, they were of age to work legally in the fields. And uh, so in the eighth grade, I essentially became an educational orphan. And uh, so I no longer had the ability to ask them for help. You know, so when it came to writing a thesis or a bibliography or what footnotes were, um, those conversations weren't had at home, although there was work to be done at home, right? You know, and, and so you become alone in this space and, and you see how your folks feel, you know, um, they're apologetic and sorry that they can't assist you. Um, and it's no fault to their own. It's just the situation. Those are the realities that, that we face. And uh, so I think about that area of time for who you're talking about. It's Sonic, what was his name? His you name don't is... need to say his name. <laughs> no, but that young man, right? You think about that young man. So essentially at some point in time, he may have been an educational orphan. And I think sometimes educators don't realize how high stakes it is to educate kids. You can say you love a kid. However... You know, do you love a kid? What does it truly look like to position yourself, you know, for black and brown children when it comes to the inequities they face on a day-to-day basis? Like, what does that look like? How far do you have to go? You know, and, and that's, a, that's a piece because there's that gap. After you're an educational orphan, you have to help as an educator build their academic identity. They have an identity. However, they may not have an academic identity of what that looks like, right? So what does that space look like? You know, and again, when I think about academic identity, identity, Dr. Priscilla Falcon, that's a term that she uses, right? So I think about just in that, in the work I do and how much I share in the collective of the folks doing the same thing. Um, but there's an importance, as you've done for that child, when you go to Sonic to order those teas, right? You should have been ordering a strawberry limeade. <laughs> right? <laughs> I like peach tea. <laughs> we all but, like uh, But, uh, you know, it's so important, right, that um, we are all teachers, you know, and it's high stakes for, for these children. So we need to all act like teachers. You know, we all have a gift. We all have a regalo to, 
to position a child, you know, with our radical hope um, that when they have that opportunity that they're going to shine. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I struggle with, you know, the, the boxes, the boxes that we continually have created to put people in and there should be yeah. absolutely no boxes. No. And I think, you know, once you get an education, it gets even more frustrating because you think of all these different elements, mm-hmm. you know, like what a family looks like. Right. Uh, you know, does it have to be this? Uh, you know, what, what does it what does engagement it, looks like? Yes, right. yes. What does a, a student look like? What does homework look like? Right. What does studying? What does reading? What are those books? I mean, there's just so many layers right. and those boxes and th- that feeling of you jump through all the hoops and sometimes it's still not enough. How many oh. times have our kids had those moments where I've done everything you told me to do and yet I still have these gut punch moments when you remind me I have, I have brown skin. Yep. And, and you know, I, I feel as though that's almost something, I mean, that's something I teach my kids. I've taught them about. I know you're going to have these moments where you're going to feel like you just got punched in the gut because you feel like you did everything you were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And then you still have this person looking in your eyes and treating you that yeah. way. And in that moment, you're going to be so angry and you're going to have to pick bitter or better. And I hope you pick better because yeah, they want tough. you to pick bitter. It's you talk tough. about dichos. My dad always said, el que se enoja pierde. The person who gets angry loses, right? And and just hearing what you're talking about, Rhonda, I, these are the talks, right? Like, these are the talks that our parents have with us and that it's like, you have to think differently. You have to outsmart. You have to have that emotional labor. You have to you do have to the extra chess. work, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you have to do that. Yeah. Otherwise, you show up as the angry Latina, the angry Latino, the, the person who just can't handle it, right? Like, all of a sudden, you're chess. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I mean, you know, it's a question. I ask a question often to teachers, you know. And when you think about what a student that's successful looks like, I always, you know, ask, um, when you picture an A student, what image comes to mind? When you picture a dropout, what image comes to mind? You know, it although it's complex in the sense of how to educate a child, um, sometimes it's as simple as the fact is, what is the mental model you have of the child in front of you? Mm-hmm. You know, um, what do you believe they can accomplish as opposed to what they believe they can accomplish? You know, and, and wow, you know, that's that's a heavy question for folks. Yeah, and, and how does that play into yeah. the success or the failure right. of your that Your patience, your tolerance. Mm-hmm. Your, your, your voice, the way yeah. you look at them, the tone, yeah, it's mm-hmm. the words, all of it. All of it. You know, and it's, and it's, it's mutual, right? I mean, um, of course, I have affinity to brown students because I'm a brown man. You know, I have a brown lived experience. So, you know, educating... Folks that are of another color or culture than my own, that's where learning takes place, yeah. right? Another, you know, social, sexual identity, you know, yeah. that's where the learning takes place, you know. So also, even though I'm an educator of color, you know, my learning is on a daily basis, you know. And that's something that I try to express um, to folks who I'm also trying to develop capacity within is that, you know what, I don't know it. I'm learning. That's why I know you all need to learn too, you know, so my growth is on a daily basis as well. And it's about me putting myself in unfamiliar spaces, sometimes uncomfortable spaces, um, but sitting in it and listening, right? You know, listening to learn rather than to respond. Very true. Well, Jesse, we would like to know, what is the process look like for you in selecting the next book that you want to highlight? 
Um, what is the next publication? Um, I mean, just so I'm ready for your next <laughs> post, too. <laughs> you know, um, it's been a little while. It's been crazy busy this summer. Um, but there is a book, right, that I'm going to do here soon. It's called uh, Being Chicano in a Wasp School. Mm. And it's a, it's a book that uh, Enrique Benavides, um, the UNC student body president, has not gifted me, but he has loaned me because um, he had asked me. He's doing this this Instagram called Raza Archives. And uh, so he's been taking these books from Al Frente and, you know, doing some images of them and doing a little bit of research on them and then posting them on his Instagram. However, this particular book, we can't find anything on. So it's a super cool book in the sense that it's unique and I think it's very rare. Um, and it's a book about really what it is to be, be a Chicano and being educated. So I look forward to being able to not only show the pictures, but, you know, hopefully discovering um, where it came from, the, you know, where it originated. There's names of illustrators and authors. We've Googled it, still can't find anything, but I have a couple of bibliographies in my library that I believe it might be in. I'm also going to scan some images and send it to some Chicano professors in Denver and see if they have known anything about this. But, yeah, it's being Chicano. Um, in a WASP school, so I look forward to that. But when I think about any book that um, I'm going to put on my books in brown hands, um, it's going to be a book that one, as I'm walking through, I'm like, wow, that's a cool book. And they're not necessarily collectible um, books in the sense as they are something that mean a lot to me. You know, one of the early books that I put on the Instagram page was um, James Baldwin. Um, the title of the book is, gosh, it's got a, it's got the short story Sonny's Blues in it. I'll remember it because right there's now. so many, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, so you know, it's just a book that means a lot to me, right? Um, you know, another book that I'd like to put is Angela de Hoyos, who's a Chicana poet from San Antonio. So I just think about the books that have been cornerstones for me in reading, and uh, yeah, you know, and sometimes it just shows up, and I'm happy, just like a book I put out on Sasquatch Beyond the, the Valley of Noble Beyond, which is a great book by John Seda. So yeah, just something that either you know, speaks to me or just, I know I believe that others might enjoy that book as well. So, so we've had just an amazing conversation. <laughs> yes. I feel like we could go on all night, especially <laughs> since you guys are drinking Modelo. But anyways, is there anything, Jesse, that you want to make sure our audience knows that maybe we haven't discussed or anything that you want to share that we didn't get a chance to, to touch on? Oh, probably there's so much, right? I was really reluctant to do a podcast, right? Ask Chris <laughs> and ask Rhonda. It's taken a long time. Yeah, we didn't like twist his arm and, you know, threaten him. <laughs> but I think that's going to be in part I think that's going to be in part two, <laughs> right? No, because there's so much, you know, when it comes to books. And as, as Chris said, you know, when I think about um, things that are besides books, whether it's ephemera or chapbooks, you know, I'd like everybody to see a little bit about what history is in the Chicano movement here in, in Colorado, right? I have actually a first edition of Corky Gonzalez's Yo Soy Joaquin. Which mm -hmm. is a, an epic poem for uh, yeah. for Chicano for the Chicano movimiento, you know. I have an early um, Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes, four volumes in hand colored plates, you know, and also the books that I've discovered along the way in Segundas for just a few dollars that end up being worth, you know, a lot of money. Um, but no, and just just how it's shaped me, you know, and, and how the literature shaped me, and how it's really began to be. A part of who I am I think forever right you know so no I'm just happy to be here and I'm happy you all have been patient with me but I think that uh, we might have to do this it's again. worth it yeah it's worth it right yeah. this is episode one which is <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know yeah so there's 
And the book I was uh, talking about by James Baldwin uh, with the short story Sonny's Blues is going to meet the man. If you have not read that book or any James Baldwin, please do so. The Fire Next Time, If Bill Street Could Talk. There's an endless amount of uh, James Baldwin that is relevant not only for today, um, but you'll enjoy looking at Harlem and at life um, in a different perspective with James Baldwin. Well, Jesse, I don't think that we can thank you enough for joining us, finally. Um, <laughs> and hopefully this is not the only time, but the first of many right. that you join us on Latino Northern Colorado. We truly, truly, truly appreciate your time and the opportunity to engage with you as we share this exciting and unique Hispanic, Latino, Chicano, Latinx identifying page with the authors that you shared, with the books that you shared, with the idea that our brown hands have unique context around these things as well. Um, no, just thank you. Yes, oh, thank, thank you all. You. you know, I'm honored. You know, I I completely believe that, you know, I think reading is uh, something special. You know, I, I look at it in the sense that I think we read in solidarity for the sake of community, you know, so we can read in silence um, and someone's reading that same book somewhere else. And uh, when you do meet or when you do interact, there's an affinity there that, you know, we are sharing the same emotions and experience as we're reading through, uh, through those words. So thank you all for spending this evening with me here. Thanks, everyone. Follow us on our social media for additional updates and upcoming episodes. Thanks again for listening. And share a book with us. If there's a book that yes. has touched you that you want to make sure people read or, you know, give us a little expert of it and, and just, you know, share your experiences and with books. There's so many. So if we can have you, you know, share something that really touched you in a way and it could touch somebody else and, and you know, bring us together in some way, just kind of like what you were talking about. Let's do that. So definitely post a book that is special to you. And as always, we invite you to join our conversation. Let's connect online or in person. And we'll see you soon. See you soon. Bye. 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 Bye.